you are listening to the Flash F1 podcast with Gil and Mark. Welcome everyone to a special mid-season break episode with your hosts Gil and Mark. This will be a fun, informative Flash F1 podcast, filling you in on most of the current Formula One news, our Flash F1 mailbag, and some pop culture to tickle your earbuds. So grab your milk and cookies, crank up the volume, and sit back. Mark and I are going to rock this one. Mark, anything more to add to my awesome intro? So two things. When the interface flashes red, that's bad. And two, are your glasses fogged up after that introduction? It is, because I'm hot. Oh, man. Summer. Summer's almost over. The summer break's almost done. And we pick up the season in Belgium this coming weekend. Pretty exciting. But before that, we have a ton of stuff to talk about. Uh, A lot's happened over the course of the summer break. There's been a lot of news breaking around the 2020 regulations and different uh, financial changes. Um, So I don't know where we want to start, but there's a ton of stuff. Maybe we cut to a break and we can come back and jump right into it. Sounds good, buddy. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Search for Flash F1 Official. Welcome back. Topic one, and we're going to jump right over to Red Bull Honda. So there was a lot of news in the media and there was a lot of chatter on social media leading up to the summer break about the fact that maybe Red Bull wasn't all that happy with Pierre Gasly. And if you look kind of do a kind of a comp comparison between him and Verstappen, it's tough to say that he's anywhere near the driver that Verstappen is. But I don't think anybody expected what did happen almost immediately after the summer break. Yeah, you, you had the team Red Bull and Toro Rosso switch drivers. You've got Gasly switching with Albon and Albon going uh, to be, I guess, Verstappen's uh, partner. Yeah, and, and it's it's not without precedent because we actually saw something very similar in 2016, although I think it was much earlier in the season. We actually saw uh, Red Bull swap drivers that season with Toro Rosso. Kvyat. They swapped Kvyat, who was actually racing for Red Bull, who's now actually with Toro Rosso. Toro Rosso. They swapped Kvyat for Verstappen, and then the rest, as they say, is history. But I think this one came as a bit of a shock because members of the Red Bull leadership team and the front office and the senior executives within that organization were indicating that they weren't on the verge of making a major change. So it came as a bit of a shock that uh, Pierre Gasly got dumped down to Torosso, the Red Bull Honda B team, and Albon, young, young Albon, got the got the promotion up to Red Bull. Talk about pressure mid-season. What, what are your thoughts on this? Was Did Pierre underperform? Has, has Albon earned the seat with Red Bull? Well, I look at it this way. I think the switch is a right move for both teams. I think they're trying to capitalize during the midseason break to see what these drivers can do. And if they can cookie cut another Verstappen out of Albon, that'd be amazing. So um, I think it's a great move for a Red Bull Tour also to do this. Uh, they're still like one big happy family, yet uh, for the drivers themselves, you know, it's part of the business. It, it is part of the business. And I, I think for our listeners that aren't familiar, while this does happen in motorsports, uh, this is a pretty unique situation because Red Bull 
the parent company, Red Bull, the soft drinks, the energy drinks company, actually owns Red Bull Honda, the Red Bull team, but they also own Toro Rosso. So Red Bull is technically based out of Milton Keynes in the UK, Toro Rosso is based out of Italy, but they own both of those teams and they specifically set it up in such a way that Toro Rosso actually functions as a B team. So they actually bring their academy drivers through Toro Rosso where they earn promotion into the Red Bull team. So they've had a really great academy. And I, I think what we've seen is if you look at the standings year to date, Pierre Gasly, obviously nowhere near as competitive as uh, Verstappen is. He he had a couple of sixth place finishes, a couple of fifth place finishes. He had a fourth place finish. He didn't actually earn any points in Germany, which was a real disappointment. Um, and then he finally he finished sixth in Hungary, no podiums, and he's been nowhere near, nowhere near Verstappen. But it's kind of this interesting configuration where they've got this B team and they've got these ready-made drivers. But to your point, I, I can't help but wonder if they're just getting really, really hungry now when if you look at the Constructors' Championship, Red Bull, because of this great run that Verstappen's had— The last couple of races. Yeah, yeah. they're suddenly chomping at the heels of uh, Ferrari, and I think they're 44 points behind, which isn't an immeasurable distance to make up. Like, they could potentially pass Ferrari in the Constructors and finish second overall, and if they think Pierre Gasly has hit his ceiling, bringing Albon is up is the right thing to do, because you're not, you don't lose anything in the process. Well, I don't think Gasly has hit his ceiling. Um, you know, he's probably just in a slump like drivers get. For me, I'm looking at it, aside from the driver switching positions, the bigger picture, the stuff in the background is the teams themselves. Red Bull is making some good moves. I think they've made some right decisions this year. You know, yeah. the the partnership they've had with Honda, that was a right move for them this year. Uh, some of their uh, changes on, on, on the car, the yeah. changes now with the drivers. Yeah. Um, they've got a plan. I think this is the year for them making these changes, implementing these changes, and hopefully they do uh, surpass Ferrari because Ferrari hasn't been doing anything since the start of the season. Yeah, that's very true. And, you know, they, they rack up some podiums, but it's really because there's only three teams competing, and ultimately, if you're one of those three teams, you're going to get some podiums. What do you think about this? Here's a thought I just had. You're Red Bull. You're going into the season. You have a brand new engine supplier. And you know that Toro Rosso had a reasonably good year the year prior, you know what, considering they had a brand new power unit. But you go into the season and you have an untested Pierre Gasly. You have Verstappen, who you know what he's capable of. But you have that brand new Honda power unit. Maybe you go into the year not expecting great results and thinking, hey, this is a great year to bring Gasly up because it's not going to be a year that we're really going to be competing anyway. So it's good for him just to get his feet wet and get, get kind of comfortable in a true A-team car. And then all of a sudden, the team's far more competitive competitive than maybe they thought they would be and I know people were saying that hey Red Bull could win five races this year but maybe they're just more competitive than they thought and they don't want to squander the chance at getting second place in the constructors championship they're tired of Gasly's mediocrity relative to Verstappen and they thought it was time for a change yeah changes okay so the power unit the engine is the engine you know they've got the data for that the, the variable here are the drivers you know are they in a uh, in a ready you know, mind state already position are that, you know, are they trained enough that they're going to be able to take advantage of the, the car and the power unit. And I say for the teams themselves, like Red Bull, go for broke, everything's untested. And you're right. You know, this is this, these are the times to test everything for the 2021 season, you know, yeah. take, take advantage of the 2019, yeah. 2020 season, make your changes, develop, and then as the new rules and changes go in for uh, the 2021 season, then you know you, you, see you have 80% of your, of your data right there. And then the rest is just like, go for broke. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe 
another question while we're on this one. So, and to give our listeners a little bit more context as well, uh, if you look at Alex Albon's performance this year, he got a points finish in Bahrain, he got a points finish in China, he got a points finish in Monaco, um, and then he's got a point finish, he finished fifth in Germany. Of course, that race was a bit of a anomaly because of the weather and things like that, but he finished 10th in Hungary. So he's got five points finishes on kind of a midfield team, not terrible. But here's the question. If he comes in and he bows to the pressure, because there will be immense pressure, not just because now he's driving for the A team, but because he's going to be competing with Verstappen week out, week in and week out. If this doesn't work out and he performs no better or if he performs worse than Gasly, what is the next Red Bull move? Do they look at bringing Kvyat back to the A team next year? Well, they've tried that already before, and then they've switched Kvyat and put him back to the B team. Now, Kvyat's already in that position now. And remember, Kvyat just had a podium as well. He True. just he just had uh, Toro Rosso's first podium since a win by uh, Sebastian Vettel in 08 or 09 or something crazy like that. Yeah, again, like, you know, they're under the same umbrella. You know, making these changes and these moves, it's, it's like a game of chess. You know, yeah. you need to find sure. the right uh, car and the right driver that's going to fit these positions. So... If Red Bull is the A team and they, they want to make these moves under their umbrella in order to, you know, gain a better position for the Red Bull team and use the B team there to kind of be their 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 training or up and coming drivers totally. for, for the next season, do that. They've got the opportunity. To, there's no harm, no foul right now, right? Because Max Verstappen is still their 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 their, their key lead boy. Driver, their, yeah, their lead boy. So uh, making the back end changes or the the B the the B team or the B driver right now, best time to do it. So you know, for Red Bull, they can't do no wrong uh, as long as that they keep consistent with their strategy. Whatever they're doing for Verstappen, they should do the same thing for the drivers that are behind him as well. Happy to see this move. Adds a little bit of excitement for the back half of the season for this Red Bull. Toro Rosso, this makes sense. Uh, really excited to see how, how this is going to play out for the second half of the season. Like I've talked about in previous podcasts that, you know, the first half of the season for me is just, you know, just placement, you know, getting the, the drivers and the, you know, the cars, you know, ready and feeling each other out and, and get everything going. It's the second half to see if, you know, the changes they've made from the first half is going to is gonna be uh, stable and, and uh, you know, working well for them going forward to, to close off the win. Yeah, I, I, I think honestly, in some ways, and you kind of nailed this, this isn't a bad thing for Torosso and it's not a bad thing for Red Bull. But, you know, if Gasly goes down and he becomes really competitive and maybe some of the pressure's off for him now too in Torosso and maybe... Maybe he just wasn't ready for that Red Bull ride. Maybe he goes back and he shows some flashes of brilliance and, you know, maybe he's right back into com- kind of a competition for a Red Bull seat in the future. But in the meantime, for Alex Albon, the young Thai British driver, um, I-, I-, I wish him well and I hope he does well because um, it would add a lot of excitement to the back half of the season. But yeah, so pretty interesting that we got to see a driver change. Probably the closest thing the sport has to a, a big trade or like a football transfer midseason. But yeah, pretty interesting. And it kind of came out of nowhere. I didn't think we were going to see this, but should add some spice to the second half of the year. Yeah, it's going to be a bit of pressure for Albon, but if he can be as aggressive as, as Verstappen, and he should just take every opportunity right now in in this in this change in the seat like go aggressive 
go, go for broke, you know, do everything you can. Because again, what, what's going to happen is he gets pushed back into the into the B team. So this is your time to shine. So the pressure's on. You got to wonder too about that Kvyat thing because Kvyat, if if they didn't have designs on Kvyat potentially making it back to the A team, why would you have him on Toro Rosso? Why would you have him blocking the development seat of somebody else that could potentially be there? And and just so our listeners are aware. Um, you've probably heard us talk a little bit about driver academy programs. Uh, a lot of the big teams, Red Bull and Ferrari and Mercedes, they often run what are called driver's academies. So they go out and they spot young drivers that are competing at a high level in lower forms of uh, the Formula Ford series or Formula Renault or go-karting or any of those things. And they'll often sign young drivers to their academy program in the intention being that they will support them financially and help bring them up the levels to eventually get a Formula One seat. And Red Bull does a fantastic job. Verstappen came from their program. Albon's a product of their program. Gasly's a uh, product of their program. Kvyat's a uh, product of their program. But transitioning a little bit over to Mercedes, Mercedes as well has a driver program, uh, an academy program, but they don't do a particularly good job of getting their drivers into their cars because they only have the A team. They only have the Mercedes team. And obviously Valtteri Bottas um, was not a product of the Mercedes Academy and Lewis Hamilton obviously wasn't. He came up in the McLaren system and ultimately raced for McLaren for many years. But one of the things that we've speculated a lot about this year has been the... Uh, role of Esteban Ocon next year. So Esteban Ocon, like George Russell, um, are both products of the Mercedes Driver Academy. But unlike George Russell, who's racing for the Williams team, Esteban Ocon has been sidelined all season because he hasn't been able to get a seat. But it looks like, and you and I have speculated about this a lot, Do you know, does Mercedes replace Bottas with Ocon? Uh, does the Mercedes team work with another team to get him a seat? There was a lot of uh, speculation last year that maybe he would have ended up at Renault before Daniel Ricciardo got that seat. But it looks like, and there's some news breaking on a couple of different platforms, including Planet F1, that he could potentially end up with Renault next year, which would suggest that maybe Bottas is safe at Mercedes. Your thoughts on him maybe making the move to Renault? Okay, so I, I didn't know if this was still rumor. I thought it was official that he Alcon was going to Renault for 2020. Still rumor at this stage, as okay. far as I know. I, and I haven't seen anything to the contrary, but it looks like it's still still rumor. And it was news that was broken by the French broadcaster RMC Sport. No deal has been announced, but... Typically, these guys are pretty reliable with their rumors. This scenario, this Mercedes scenario with Bottas and Ocon, unlike Red Bull and Toro Rosso, this one doesn't make sense to switch them. Uh, we, I've talked on a previous couple of podcasts where Bottas, okay, he's probably in a slump. He's you know not performing you know as well as he did at the start of the season. You know he's gotten some Q ones. He's gotten you know a, a, a bit of a good first two three races of the of the first half of the season, but. You know, every driver goes through a thing. You know, you're talking about trying to get Ocon into replacing Bottas to see how he'll perform. He's been waiting in the winds, um, in in the uh, to try and to try and get a spot or take Bottas' seat. He was upset that he wasn't able to get uh, a drive in one of the two races, the last couple oh, of races. Oh, Hamilton was sick in Germany. That's I think right. he had, he'd flown in, especially hoping to get some time in the seat. I yep. think they just still need to just keep nurturing Bottas again. With this, I, I with this, agree. Yeah, I, I I think we've talked about this before. Forget about Bottas from a performance perspective. He works well with Hamilton. Hamilton's happy. Hamilton keeps winning championships. 
I don't know what else you could good want. for the team. Yeah. Uh, but for Bottas as a driver, if this is just a just a slump in in his career right now, we'll see what he can do in the second half of the season. Uh, you know, he he's he probably knows this himself. You know, we're just talking about it, but he knows himself. How's he going to drive for the second half of the season? He knows he needs to perform. Lucky for him, if he's if he's still contracted to to finish off the season and to go on next year. Ocon, if he's got the opportunity to go to a Formula One team, regardless if it's Mercedes or not, just any open driver position or seat position for any other team will get him in the game. So Ocon, if you've got the opportunity to go for Renault or any other team out there just to get into the game, get get a driver's seat, do it. Don't wait for Mercedes. They've trained you enough for these past five years, right? They've been training you. You've been with them and yes you know you do want to get a seat in with mercedes they're one of the top three teams but if renault um is going to pay you the bucks to drive for them totally build that experience because the longer you sit out every season not driving is your potential your your peak just slipping by you like take it now i couldn't agree with you more the way you summarize that is perfect he can't he can't afford to be choosy and from a botas perspective as much as you and i have shared a little bit, especially me, have shared a little bit of disappointment about Bottas this season. The reality is he still has nine podiums. He's won two races. I think he's finished second four times. Like He's been competitive, and maybe it's just not fair that we index him against Hamilton, who has the potential to be the greatest driver in the history of the sport, right? So the exact rumor is this. The rumor has... Esteban Ocon going from Mercedes to Renault on loan. The reason apparently, and this is breaking right now, but the reason it hasn't been announced is because Renault wants to negotiate a place with Hulkenberg at Haas first. And Hulkenberg would take Roman Grosjean's spot, so he would be out a seat next year. So they're trying to get him a seat with Haas so that they can get Esteban Ocon a seat with Renault. So there's kind of a lot of moving pieces here. It's very much like a chess match, but it looks like the the last man standing or the last man out in this case would be Roman Grosjean. So that shuffle to me makes sense. Like Grosjean, the last couple of seasons may or may not be ultimately everything that his fault happening with with uh, Haas, but Grosjean hasn't been performing like he did, like say five to seven years ago right so uh, Grosjean needs to go out so yeah he needs to take a break and, and kind of collect himself he hasn't been doing much uh, again uh, all the, the the wheel or the vehicle um, uh, issues may not be 100% his fault but he's got a car is he doing anything with it regardless of the you know the the vehicle mishaps but yep. no he's always yep. either actually not almost he's al- almost always in the back of the pack totally Roman Grosjean yeah absolutely and I mean if you look at if you look at the results this year um, he retired in three of the first four races he had two other retirements like he's not had a great year he has three points finishes a 10th a 10th and a 7th like from from a, a Renault perspective or from a sorry a Haas, Haas perspective, perspective you yeah. can't be happy with that especially when you've got a hot or a Ferrari power unit in those cars staying on the subject of drivers academies there was and this one's kind of interesting but there was a little bit of noise in German media over the past couple of weeks and you can tell it's the summer break because there isn't a ton of news around Formula One but there was some noise and some rumblings in German motorsports media about the fact that Mercedes didn't bring Mick Schumacher into their junior or their academy program and of course Mick Schumacher is the young son of seven times world champion 
Michael Schumacher. Um, but there was a little bit of criticism because they're the German team. Uh, his father finished his career racing for Mercedes before Lewis Hamilton joined the team in 2013. But really, it just came down to, and Total Wolf spoke about this, it really just came down to the fact that at the end of the day, we've got Esteban Ocon, and we can't get him a seat, and we've got George Russell... Um, rotting away in the Williams team. Yep. We don't have room to bring on any other talented driver. So for now, he continues to be a part of the Ferrari team. He's got some Ferrari tests, and obviously there's some strong linkages there with his father. Mick Schumacher, for those of you that don't know, um, actually won the Formula 3 championship last year. He just won his first Formula 2 championship, and he's somebody that... If not this year, then probably next year, you'll see his name attached to um, potential seats in Formula One as well. And I think for the sport, people would be excited. Would you be interested in seeing Mick Schumacher race in Formula One? I would. Uh, I haven't ha- I haven't been following his career all too, too much. You know, he's been in Formula Three. I think as he levels up to Formula Two and then as yeah. he ultimately gets into Formula One, that's when the pressure's on. You know, he's the son of Michael Schumacher. Also one of the greatest, you know, drivers in the history of Formula One. There's going to be a lot of pressure on this on on his son here. So um, Mick's going to really have to prove himself. You know, you know, he's the son of Michael Schumacher. He's, you know, in 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 a driving position. Does he have the skills and the talent? Is he now just building up his training? So when he does get to Formula One, will it be just like his dad? Totally. Uh, I think that would be tough. Yeah, I, I think he's still young. He still or has even a... his uncle Ralph Schumacher. Yeah, right? Ralph. So, yeah, and, brother. And, and the and brother. For our listeners yeah. as well, Michael Schumacher's brother, Ralph Schumacher, ran or raced in Formula One at the same time that his dad did. So it's crazy. The family, the family legacy is pretty strong when it comes to Formula One. Yeah. So driving's in their genes. Um, we'll see. We'll see what happens with. Once he starts developing even more and he starts to level up, uh, hopefully he doesn't end up a, a commentator like his uncle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hopefully he has a better career. Yeah. So uh, I think the pressure's on. Take this opportunity now. Yeah. Don't don't rush into getting into a F1 drive position so fast. There's look at what happens to some of these drivers who just buy their way into F1. You got that one shot. Yeah. If you blow it, you don't like Daniel Kvyat is such a rare example of somebody that basically gets booted out of the sport and gets a second opportunity. That doesn't happen very often. And I've always thought with uh, Daniel Kvyat, maybe some of that is just because there's so many Russian petrodollars supporting the sport that they needed to have the presence of a Russian driver, especially with Sergei Sorokin gone. But but yeah, like don't rush into it when you're not when you're not old enough, you're not mentally prepared, you're not physically prepared, and blow that opportunity when maybe a year later you're going to be much more competitive oh you went there i was leaning more towards like uh, perez yeah (laughs) you know perez you know gotten the sport he's had his ups and downs and like i said i don't want to say that if he you know he had the the financial backing to get into the sport just to kind of rush or keep him in there but um build build your talent build your skill don't rush in the formula because once you get there that reputation is is going to start to to stick with you right are you jumping in there and then are you a good driver or you just jumped in there just to jump in there and then you're not performing so uh with the last name schumacher um just you know do your thing yeah the the one thought is you know what ferrari now more than ever really has that formal tie-up with sauber i guess not sauber anymore but 
Alfa Romeo, Alfa that's Romeo. who really functions as their B team. You know what? They've got that seat now. We we know we know Raikkonen's there, and Raikkonen's having a blast this year. It looks like he's having a ton of fun in that seat. Of course, he's there's not partnering no pressure. With, with Vettel. There's yeah, no, there's no pressure, yeah. no team orders. But you you look at his teammate Antonio Giovinazzi. Like this guy's had a horrendous, horrendous year, and I don't think he's had a points finish yet, or maybe he's had one tenth place points finish. Like you have to think that that seat's going to be open next year, and hopefully, hopefully they don't rush into making the decision or being make up too early because those seats will still be available in yeah. the future. There's still a long ways to go. Like I said, it's only 2019, the 21 21 season. Yes, it's coming up fast, but you know, we're just talking about it now. What's going to happen next year? There could be something drastic or something goes sideways. Who knows what's going to happen? They might make some more drastic changes coming up into the 2021 season. So, totally. and, and maybe on that last note, just kind of a, a, provide a little bit more context for our listeners. We talk about how Red Bull has kind of a tie-up with Toro Rosso. They own the team. It's their B team. Ferrari doesn't necessarily own Alfa Romeo, but they have a really, really strong partnership, and they do function as their B team. Um, and it's beneficial to both teams. It's a great opportunity for Alfa Romeo to get access to Ferrari Academy drivers, but it's also great for them to get access to Ferrari technology, technology power units. Parts, yeah. Exactly. Um, Mercedes doesn't really have that partnership. They produce and provide engines to Williams, but I don't think they would want to call them their B team. Yep. Uh, but they also have a strong tie-up with, uh, with like I was going to say Force India, but Racing points the, point. the silverstone based canadian owned team in racing point um and i think there's a lot of speculation that last year that mercedes was potentially eyeing force india at the time as a purchase to be their official b team and maybe that still happens in the future but as it stands right now ferrari or mercedes has a lot of academy drivers looking for seats and they just don't have enough seats currently on Instagram and Twitter. Search for Flash F1 Official. A couple of moments ago, Gil alluded to 2021, and if you've been listening to our podcast since the start earlier this year, we've talked a lot about 2021, and I think it's important to explain a little bit of why. Every now and then, every four years, five years, 10 years, at different intervals, Formula One tends to reinvent itself. And when I talk about reinventing itself, I talk about drastic sweeping specification changes to the cars, uh, changes to the chassis, the wheels, the power units. And they do this because oftentimes what happens over the course of a couple of years is the teams in the sport that have the most money to spend typically have engineering resources to help them develop cars that significantly outperform the rest of the field. And we're kind of in that place right now where we have three teams in Mercedes, Red Bull, Honda, and Ferrari that absolutely dominate the field and no other team has any chance of winning. So every now and then the sport effectively I guess in a way you could say the sport kind of reboots. They go back to the drawing board. They say, hey, look, we're going to have a new car and we're going to have new engines and everyone starts from ground zero. And of course, over the course of three or four or five years, the richer teams tend to get ahead. So 2021 marks the beginning of an entirely new era. The most recent reboot happened in 2014 when we went from uh, naturally aspirated V8 engines to the uh, 1.6 liter V6 turbos that we have today today. 
we did a fairly significant evolution of that 2014 era in 2017 when we brought in the wider wheels and the lower wings and some new aero parts. And then we did a revision to that in 2019. But 2021 is a complete, a complete reinvention of the cars and the power units and the way the sport functions. So there has been a lot of information trickling out and the sport has been promising formula one has been promising that we should get a finalized view of what the sport's going to look like in october of this year so right now a lot of it's speculation we don't know what the engine specifications are um it's just becoming a little bit clear what the cars are going to look like there's some news which i think gil's excited to talk to in a couple of minutes there has been some news breaking about what the cars look like there's been some news breaking about the fact that we're probably going to be seeing some more standardized parts so teams don't have to custom build things like brakes etc um, but there's also been excitingly some news about budget caps as well and we'll talk a little bit about that but maybe the most recent news has been around the car itself and the fact that it looks like in an effort to make the sport possibly a little bit more affordable for the teams and introduce a little bit more parity we're going with a newly designed car so the cars will actually look different in 2021. Yeah, so as Mark mentioned, this reboot, this Formula One reboot, is really just to shake things up with the with the sport. Everything gets stagnant. Everyone starts to adapt, yeah. or some some teams can't change based based on economics. Economics. Yep. Um, so this, the change in the rules, the change in the technology, this is good for the sport. This yep. is healthy. It keeps the competitiveness going, and it just revitalizes the sport so i like to see the rule changes uh some good some bad yep. you know we see those um and then same with the the vehicle technology some good some bad yep some simplified some moving the cars forward but uh, imagine and, and listeners imagine this imagine you're williams and, and we take a lot of shots at williams but they're a smaller team they're largely privately owned they're a family-run organization they don't have the resources that ferrari and mercedes and red bull do and if you went to williams and you said hey look the rules that we have today are not changing for at least the next 10 years williams would be out of the sport tomorrow Haas would be out of the sport tomorrow. Yeah. McLaren potentially would be out of the sport tomorrow. Yeah, they'd be hanging out with Marisha. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> jo jokes aside, like what mo motivation would I as Williams have to stay in a sport where I could never even remotely compete? I'll exactly. just, I'll tap. So part of this is compromise on the part of the bigger teams that, hey, look, we acknowledge that some things have to change to encourage teams to remain in the sport because you can't have a sport with three teams. Exactly. Although you could, you, you could argue that that's what it yeah. is right now. But there's some compromise on the part of the big teams but at the same time those big teams like to win races and they are not going to compromise too much so one of the reasons we don't know a lot of information about what the new power units are going to look like is because there's still a lot of back and forth and my sense we talked about this before is that the longer it takes for them to get to a finalized engine spec for 2021 the more likely it is that it's going to be very similar to today's yeah and you look at these changes Look at Mercedes. They've adapted really well to the hybrid era of these vehicles. Yeah. They've been performing top-notch with these new hybrid vehicles. And then you look at Ferrari. Some of the calls and changes that they've made, they've been underperforming. So uh, not, not necessarily all the three teams are going to you know, do well and take advantage of the changes. It's, it just comes down to you know, a lot of things. A lot of the factors are money, drivers. Uh, the rules and the, and the changes, uh, but this reboot, this, this, these new rules, these new technology changes, this is going to be amazing for 2021. We've been going the last what four years now with yeah. um, 
the hybrid and, and yeah, since 2014, so 14, yeah. 15, 16, 17, 18. So this Two is the changes. sixth year. Yeah. Mercedes won the yeah. constructors and the drivers all of those years. So hopefully it'll be good for the sport too. And if you were if you were to really summarize it, um, there's a couple of things that the sport's looking at doing. One, they want desperately to introduce more parity because at the end of the day. 10 teams isn't really great. And I I think if you were to ask anyone within the executive ranks of Liberty, the organization that owns Formula One, they would love to see 11, 12. They would love to see 13 or 14 teams. And they would also love to see more engine manufacturers. Today, we have Honda producing engines for two teams. We've got Renault. We've got Ferrari and we've got Mercedes. They would love to have other engines. They would love to have the Volkswagen Group producing an engine maybe through Porsche. They would love to see other Japanese manufacturers producing engines. But at the end of the day, those companies look at the cost of producing a 1.6 liter V6 turbo hybrid engine and they just walk away. They throw their hands up in the air. And at the same time, if I'm Renault, I'm not having any luck. Why do I want to stay around? So part of this is creating more economic parity and they're doing that through a couple of ways one they're simplifying the cars so the cars won't be as complex and there's going to be more onerous regulation around what you can and can't do with the aero parts but two they're actually also going to be introducing a new budget cap so today for all intents and purposes um if you were to compare if you're to compare formula one to sports mercedes ferrari red bull they're very much like the new york yankees the dallas cowboys manchester united they just spend as much money as they want you look at mercedes they've got a thousand people working at their factory versus a racing point which maybe has three or four hundred people and they spend it's speculated that mercedes ferrari and red bull it's speculated that they spend anywhere from 220 to 250 million us dollars a year on their cars when a lot of these smaller teams are down in the 60 80 100 million dollar range so it looks like in and this is loosely confirmed, but it looks like there's going to be a compromise and there's going to be a budget cap of $170 million. Now, that excludes marketing and drivers, but teams won't be able to spend more than $175 million. So hopefully that creates a little bit more kind of parity. And it looks like they're going to start standardizing parts as well. So today, teams like Williams spend a ton of money building custom wheels and brakes and hydraulic suspension components, using exotic materials, building kind of custom one-off ad hoc radiators. Um, all those kind of pieces. So a lot of those pieces will now be standardized and will be bought off the shelf. So the teams like Williams, they don't have to spend a fortune building a custom (laughs) radiator. They'll simply go and buy the exact same radiator that everybody else is using. So they're trying desperately to create a bunch of parity. But what they also want to do is kind of as a trade-off to fans, make the cars look cool. And they're doing that through 18-inch wheels, which should be really cool, and some new aero, which I, I think should be pretty exciting as yeah, well. Yeah, let's, let's jump into the new vehicles. Go you know, for it. The, the, whole, the whole money thing and standardizing the parts. Gone are the days of like 2009 when, yeah. when Virgin and Braun first came in. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, they, they performed really well. They, you know, they did a, had a great season. Yep. 2000, uh, 2009. And, One of the greatest sports stories of all time. And then, yeah, and look at them now. Haas, right? Yep. So, um yeah, let's jump right into the cars. So 2021, I got a sneak peek. Uh, I got some visuals on on the new 2021 cars. These cars look crazy. They've got um, a more simplified front wing. Much, much. They look like indie cars. Yeah. Like super simplified. They, they got rid of a lot of the little louvers and aerodynamic yeah. little bits and pieces. that The are, inlets and the lips and yeah. all that. Super simplified. I like it clean. And then yeah. they've gone back to, you know, from a, years ago, like the, the more narrower, smaller rear wing. Yeah. 
And then they've got the, the larger side pods and the attachment to the side pods where these aerodynamic skirts kind of, yep. you know, w- wing out on the, on the side pods. But the barge boards are largely gone based on the models that we've seen so far. So the actual footprint of the car, like if you were to look at it from the top down, is smaller, it would seem, especially given how simplified that front wing is. Uh, they've got 18-inch wheels. They still have, retain nice. the halo for nice. for safety. So the car overall, when you see the sketches, when you see the photos, there's a lot of photos floating around there, either like a, you know blueprinted or black and white photos, or a uh, filled-in kind of like a rendering of of the the vehicle. Really simplified. There's been a lot of argument right now with the whole, you know, shaking things up with 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 the vehicles in. In doing these uh, changes to the wings, and you know, do we keep these big, big wings? Do we reduce the wings or get rid of the uh, the front and rear wing altogether? What what the sport needs is the wing because we've yeah. talked about in previous, with in previous podcasts with the way that these cars and the technology and the aerodynamics and the amount of power and speed these cars are producing now, they need the downforce, so they need that rear wing to kind of keep yeah. them stable. We've talked on previous podcasts before where Nick, uh, was it Nicholas Latifi or Tim Haraney mentioned that the first thing punching through the air is that front wing. Yeah. So th- those pieces have to change. They, they can't get rid of them or change them too drastically or else cars will be sliding all over the place. Yeah. That you know, With how fast these cars are going now, with the types of tires that they're using, uh, it, they, they need to have that balance. The, the other thing too is it's as much about creating downforce for the car in question but one of the other things that the sport's really been criticized for is that the cars themselves create so much dirty air that they destroy the potential for downforce of the cars following them so it it's understood that depending on which cars you're talking about the track all that kind of stuff all those different dynamics that the car following the car in front of it at roughly one to two car lengths has only 50 percent of the downforce of the car in front of it and if you have that little downforce versus the car that you're chasing you will never be in a position to overtake it because you're not producing enough grip and one of the things that the formula one sport and fia are trying to solve for in this case is while the cars may look different and they might be a little bit more simplified, extensive engineering has gone into creating a car that produces far less wake or dirty air behind yeah, it. turbulent air. Exactly. Yeah. So what they're speculating, and apparently this was something that was modeled through computational fluid dynamics, so kind of computer modeling software, and then verified with this half-scale car that was kind of shown off last week, is that the car following a car will now have only will lose only now I think five to ten percent of the downforce which versus 50 percent or 60 or 70 or 80 percent is crazy and it should help promote overtaking and passing and just make racing more exciting yeah so with this season they went with the with the wider wing that just kind of is almost flusher level with the wheels in order to give that aerodynamic balance in and around the vehicle so when I see these 2021 vehicles and I see these little winglets on the side pods I'm thinking you know to myself is this something else that's added to kind of reduce that turbulent air get that airflow to kind of um, work with the with the vehicle and the wheels yeah totally so it, it should be exciting. And, you know, obviously we maybe even do a special podcast come October just to talk about the regulations when they're released because at that point we'll know what the power units are, we'll know what the standardized parts are, we'll know what the budget cap is, we'll have a look at a finalized look at what the car looks like and we'll be able to talk and speculate about what that means for the sport. But 
ultimately what they're trying to do is they're trying to create a little bit more parity so teams like Mercedes and Red Bull and Ferrari can't spend 10 times what other teams do and they're trying to make cars that generate less wake or dirty air so that there can be more overtaking and passing in the sport so smaller teams can potentially get by a Red Bull or a Ferrari or a Mercedes if they're close enough to so this is why we're talking about it because it's going to change the sport. What has me scratching my head, Mark, is the 18-inch wheels. So going with a larger wheel diameter, for me, I'm like, is this really going to do anything for the vehicle? I'm looking at it more as like a tire performance, like, you know, having the right rubber on the wheel as opposed to the size. So if the wheel is larger, you might want to educate me on this, but if the wheel is larger... I don't know if that's gonna do anything in terms of performance or, or handling per se. Not like you know Mercedes had that um, that kind of aerodynamic funnel into into their into their wheels the last season. Uh, the larger 18-inch wheels, I, I don't know. Uh, like I said, I, I I could be wrong altogether. But for me, it would be the tire. So are they going to be going with less rubber, a more lower profile tire? Um, are the tire compounds going to change based on, you know, the, the, the wheel size that they're going with now? Like, uh, I don't know. I don't know. So the 18 inch wheels, uh, for me, has me scratching my head. I don't know uh, what this is going to do for the vehicle. They must do something if they're going to, if they're going to uh, make this change or they're just making this change to kind of shake things up to see what the teams will do in order to react to this wheel change. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a couple things here. I think one is that, and, and this is kind of an aside from the performance side of the sport, but I think right away, Pirelli invests a ton of money into Formula One uh, because they get their names on the side of the tires of the highest performance cars in the world. They get their billboards and their signage all over their track. But ultimately, they're producing something that you will never see on a road car because for Formula One cars have tiny 13-inch wheels, and they have these huge, thick, um, racing slick tires. Nobody owns one of those. No one's going to buy them. So I think strictly from a marketing perspective, it serves it serves Pirelli well because Pirelli is now going to be able to market a tire that looks similar to what you're going to buy for your car. So an 18-inch wheel with a low-profile racing slick is much closer in... Yeah, it's, it's much, much closer in practice to what you're going to buy at the store. So off the rack. So I think there's some marketing pieces. So that's really the, I, I think, kind of a, a marketing spin and a vanity spin. They look better. It's going to help Pirelli. I, I think in the past as well, other tire manufacturers have been loath to produce slick racing tires for 13-inch wheels because really no series outside of Formula 1 the feeder Caesar or series use them. I think in the past there's been speculation that other tire manufacturers like Michelin might be interested in rejoining the sport if they used a more standardized tire. But I, I recall one of your buddies once, and we were talking to one of your guys that works at McLaren, he'd made a couple of interesting observations as well. And one is the fact that, and this isn't necessarily a benefit, but it's just the byproduct of going to a tire with a thinner sidewall, is that the wheels today, the tires today, absorb a ton of the flex that would otherwise be transferred to the components and the suspension. So, and he mentioned, I think, and you and I were having this conversation with him, is that in this transition to 18-inch wheels, and they're going to be rebuilding these cars anyways. They're but going they, to go with a thinner tire, and you're going to lose that sidewall flex. flex. Yep. And then you fundamentally have to reinvent the suspension of the car because those mechanical components are going to have to pick up the slack in terms of absorbing the bumps and the impact of driving over curbs and things like that. Which is great when I was talking about the whole shakeup with going with an 18-inch yeah. wheel, where now the teams have to 
get, you know, get this data and, and, you know, use their engineering and technical advantage to, you know, make these changes and, and work with an 18 inch wheel with a low profile tire. Yeah, absolutely. So shout out to your friend at McLaren Martin, for having a great yeah, conversation. Thank, thank you, Martin from uh, McLaren Vancouver for uh, giving us some of your uh, automotive uh, knowledge and background totally. uh, for, for the Flash F1 podcast. So Formula One's going to soften the transition to 18 inch wheels because it is a very significant change for the sport. Um, it looks like they're going to adopt 18 inch wheels in the Formula Two feeder series next year. So Pirelli can start getting some data around tire compositions and the structural build of the tires but it also looks and again we really have to wait till october for some of this finalized information but it looks like formula one is going to abandon tire warmers for 2021 as well and again this isn't finalized but if you've ever seen a race and i'm sure if you're listening to us you have but when they're carting those cars out to the grid at the start of the race you see the engineers with those big heavy kind tire of electrical blankets. Blank, yeah, yeah tire wrapping blankets. the tires trying to get as much heat into them as possible so that the drivers hit as much grip but it looks like those will be outlawed those will be banned um this is what i'm excited for because yeah. for years we've been seeing tire blankets on on tires and what this does listeners is it heats up the tire gives them a bit more like grip when they when they plant those tires down on the on the track uh, so, and then you see the, also the drivers, you know, when they're doing their laps, they're trying to keep heat in the tires, keep them warm. Cause that's how they're, that's how they work. You know, the, the softer they are, the more, um, contact they're going to have to the track and be able to propel the vehicle. So with no tire warmers, the, the tires are going to be cold. They're not going to be so grippy. Yeah. Uh, they're going to be like, you know, hockey pucks on an ice rink. If some of you know hockey out there, but, uh, it, it, the it's what's going to keep them on on the track as opposed to sliding or just just the overall performance of the vehicle. So this is going to be really interesting. I'm excited to see this if this does go forward, Mark. And, and maybe maybe ultimately Pirelli has to engineer a compromise because today they can develop a tire that has zero grip unless there's a ton of heat in the tire. Maybe they have to start developing a tire that doesn't have as much maximum grip, but is grippier when it's cold. But again, this is all speculation and it's exciting and we just have to wait till 2021 to see what happens. Well, Pirelli's done it all anyway. You look at last season, they've come up with so many different compounds. You've got the ultra soft, you've got the hyper soft, you've got the, you know, incredibly, incredibly, incredibly soft and it's whatever they got. It's, it's crazy. And you look at what, uh, seasons past where, uh, when Pirelli did come back into the sport, I think, uh, somewhere midway through, they had like tires exploding on the track. The, I don't know if it was a bad batch or the compound that they used, they'd be drivers would be racing their cars and then they would just shred or explode on the track this is probably the fourth time you've mentioned that and i still don't know when that happened so i'm going to go to youtube later and find that out Do it. I want it's to happened it, yeah. to hamilton it's happened to a bunch yep. of uh drivers uh, i think it was probably about seven or eight years ago when yep. uh when pirelli had a, a batch of tires for that for that one season and they'd just be driving and they'd just be yeah. blowing off the cars and, and listeners i i would suggest as well not to underestimate the value of the engineering that goes into tires if ever you have the opportunity to youtube the 2005 us grand prix i would highly highly recommend you do so because it talks in great detail about how a race one of the pinnacle races on the calendar was ruined because one of what were two tire providers at that time brought a tire to the race that wasn't actually suitable or engineered for the track and it posed such significant danger to the drivers that would have been racing on that tire that they all had to withdraw from the race and the race actually started and finished with three teams and just six cars so take 
take a look at that 2005 U.S. Grand Prix tires. It's really interesting to see. But yeah, this will be interesting. And I guess they have that transition year. So Formula 2 will be running the 18-inch spec next year. So Pirelli's got tons of time to engineer a tire and get a lot of data. It would be much tougher if they were going in cold straight to Formula 1 with this brand new recipe. So they get a year with Formula with Formula 2. Nice. Cool. I think other than that, and, and you know what, we'll probably sign off here pretty quick, but one other kind of quick update, um, IndyCar. So Indy Racing League, which is, it's, uh, I would say, a, a predominantly a North American uh, open wheel racing series. It races on a mixture of super speedway, short ovals, and a couple of road races like Toronto and uh, Detroit and a couple of other races overseas. It's definitely not at the spec or caliber of Formula One. There's a much more parity in the sport. There's much more uniformity when it comes to chassis and when it comes to uh, suppliers and standardized parts and things like that. But in North America, there's obviously a really loyal following for this form of open wheel racing. For me, I, I don't love it because it kind of... They spend a lot of time on speedways and ovals, so it kind of has that NASCAR feel. And I think one of the things that makes Formula One so special is that they race on dedicated circuits that are designed to test these cars at their limit. And for me, an oval doesn't do that, and it doesn't really excite me. But Indy's looking to introduce some pretty significant changes for 2022, some changes of their own. So currently they run twin turbo 2.2 liter V6 engines that produce roughly 700 horsepower. In 2022, they're introducing their own hybrid motors, which will produce around 900 horsepower. So they're doing that to pair up with some new chassis and a completely new rethink of their aero kits. Um, but really, they've got a really neat system in Indy where we've got DRS and we talk about DRS, which is kind of that cool Drag For your listeners, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. there, Mark. Just for your new listeners, drag reduction system is what the DRS uh, acronym is. Absolutely. It's it's kind of a tool that allows cars, and maybe in 2021, you don't even need it anymore, but if you're following closely behind a driver, there are certain DRS zones on the track where you can activate DRS, which opens a slit in the wing, reduces drag, and you you have a better opportunity to pass the car in front of you. IndyCar has something similar, but it's not a DRS system. It's a push to pass. So the cars actually have reserved horsepower that's accessible at certain times and at certain moments with a button on the steering wheel so that it looks like they're going to try and increase the push to pass as well so as much as we're seeing some big fundamental changes at formula one in terms of modernizing and simplification and parity um it looks like indycar is going on a, a journey of their own in terms of new motors and power units and uh chassis and aero kits and things like that my goodness man i thought this was going to be a 20 minute podcast but we've had some great material anything else from you today are we going to get to the best part of the podcast that I've been waiting the for? The mailbag? No, the, the black pink. Take it away. Okay, so this is the part of the podcast that I've been waiting for. Really excited. Is it the only reason you showed up today? It is. <laughs> so straight from happy hour at the restaurant to my house. And listeners, just so you know, I roll into my place. He gets here before me. The guy's lying on the couch with dark sunglasses on staring at the ceiling. So maybe the surprise should be it hasn't happened more often like that. But okay, the next five minutes are all yours. All right. So this is the part of the podcast where I talk about Blackpink. So for those of you listeners who don't know who Blackpink is, Blackpink is a Korean K-pop girl group that debuted in 2016 and has been killing it ever since they've, you know, been debuted in 20 since they've come out. So there's four members. There's Jenny, there's Rosé, there's Jisoo, and there's Lisa. These girls are hot Asian girls that sing amazing. So I haven't really been into K-pop all too much, not since 2021, uh, 10 years ago, uh, but I've gotten back because of Blackpink 
They are awesome. They are, they've got like the number number one uh, K-pop song out right now, Kill This Love. It debuted uh, April 4th of this year and hit over 54 million views in 24 hours. They're the first female K-pop group to be invited to perform at Coachella this year. And their their comebacks, their videos, their songs are are awesome. They're you know, uh, Blinks who are who are um, Blackpink fans are waiting for anything and everything coming out for Blackpink. So if you haven't heard of Blackpink, I take uh, take some time, listen to their music. Their transition from Korean to English is amazing. They don't sound really K-popish or bubbly. It's a, a great mix of like a hard K-pop type song and they they're they're amazing they can do it in korean they can do it in english they can do it in japanese and possibly chinese so they 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 can do it all i i was very skeptical about letting gil do this segment and and we like to inject a little bit of pop culture and a little bit of fun into these podcasts but i i went to youtube last week i think and and i looked it up and i gotta say that these girls are there's there's a little bit of gangster in this group and I, I really 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 liked it that i was expecting that really kind of bubblegum pop fun which fizzy, they're not not at all that like this is pretty gangster music and like the the references uh, anyways it was really really good and i like the song would it kill the love no no uh is the one where they do the gunshots yeah that one's very cool very gangster and the other one the other new one is kill this love kill this love they're both very good and I like what I run a lot and I like to listen to more high tempo hip hop because it kind of keeps them going. I'll be honest, I was listening to a couple of their tracks last week as well. And to your point as well, they have this broad appeal because they transition seamlessly from Korean to English, like just seamlessly. And they go from really talented singing to rapping. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, everything works. And then there's a lot, their, their music videos, if you ever just YouTube Blackpink and any of their music videos, the production value in their videos yeah. is yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Like. Vibrant colors, like what they spend on doing these videos, totally makes the song that much better when you watch the videos. So, uh, again, I'm a Blink, I'm a Blackpink fan. I've got their, you know, swag. I've got their T-shirts. I've, you know, did you not go to the Blackpink store in LA recently? I did. I went to a K-pop store, bought anything and everything Blackpink. I listen to their music or watch their videos daily. But you're right too. And again, I, I'm sorry for our listeners for having to listen to this before we <laughs> sign off. But the production value in the video is crazy. It reminded me of some of the classic, uh, I would say, NSYNC or Backstreet Boys videos back from the early 2000s when music videos were really, really important. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was really, really cool to see. The production values, the sets, the color, the design, everything was really, really good. And since you're probably really eager to know what I've been listening to this summer no, as well. not really. Okay. But go ahead. I'm going to go I'll, ahead. I'll give you your minute. Dude, I haven't mentioned I haven't mentioned Drake once. So oh, Yeah, yeah. You like how many podcasts But not in episodes? this not in this podcast. Okay, okay, okay. Drop the coins. Okay. Um, I've listened to Drake's Money in the Bank featuring Rick Ross about a million times this summer. And I think the other big hits for me, uh, Megan the Stallion, Hot Girl Summer has been a really great summer jam for me. It kind of grew on me over the last couple of weeks. Um, Meek Mill's going bad featuring Drake has been awesome. The baby babysitter has been awesome. And I've been a really big fan of Ariana Grande this summer too. Her Blackpink killed Ariana Grande in a uh, 24-hour opening debut of a song. Blackpink. Ariana Grande is one person. Yeah. So they, they yeah. So Four um, versus one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gang bang right there. So uh, Blackpink, yeah, they beat Ariana Grande. They beat. Taylor Swift and a 24-hour okay. debut. So Blackpink okay. in your area. Let's uh, you 
Jesus. You, <laughs> you've, uh, you've made your point. Let's sign off. So this weekend, we have Belgium. Spa is one of the best races on the calendar. There's no better way. The entire back half of the season comes fast and furious. We've got Spa. We have Monza. Then we're off to Japan. We have Singapore. Like It comes yeah. fast and furious. So uh, hang on to your seatbelts, folks, because the back half of the season is going to be an exciting one. Also, yeah, don't forget to check out uh, Flash F1's uh, Spa um, podcast yep. next week. Yep, absolutely. All right, guys. Been great uh, chatting with you, Gil. Uh, I'll let you get home and listen to Blackpink on the way. Awesome. Peace. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. You have been a great audience. This is Sarah signing off at Flash F1 with Gil and Mark. Thanks for listening. Join us next time as we recap the Belgian Grand Prix.